it's funny how many things go on in life that we're not really aware of that we kind of take for granted. When you, um, when you think of currency, when you think of American currency, and you, and you picture what's on that currency, you know, the first thing that pops into your mind is uh, different presidents, um, different enumerations on bills and on coins. But you also eventually think about the slogan that's found on our currency, which is what? In God we trust. But what you might not know is that wasn't the original slogan. The original slogan back in the 1700s by Benjamin Franklin was, mind your own business. Can you imagine that? And then on the other side, we are one. <laughs> what a contradiction. Mind your own business, but we're one. You never would know that. We just look at what we see today and, and don't know anything else than, uh, than the quick sound bite that's put behind it. Um, how many of you know a, a guy by the name of Richard Jones? He was a naval engineer who was designing a meter uh, to monitor power on, ba on battleships. And as he was putting it together, um, one of uh, the springs of the meter fell on the ground and just kept bouncing all over the place. And so he scrapped the meter and came up with the slinky. How many of you knew that? How many of you, when you think of <clears throat> Noah, what do you think of? Noah's Ark. What you don't think of is Noah's bottle. Noah's drinking problem. This morning, as we finish up our series on God, what did you mean by that? We're going to look at Genesis chapter 9. It's one of the last strange, well, at least for now, the last strange passages of Scripture that tells us some things about Noah that we don't usually think about. And, and that almost seem irrelevant because <clears throat> it's, a, it's a passage of Scripture. It's just a, a few verses that uh, comes at the end of his life that seems odd and irrelevant. And uh, we look at it and we say, why, why was that thrown in the Scripture? In the midst of all the great and mighty things that Noah did, <clears throat> God, what do you mean by, by adding this little snippet at the end of his life? This morning, we're going to look at Genesis 9 as we wrap up this series. And what I want you to see is what we sometimes don't see. That's been the whole purpose of this series, to see what God wants us to see that we either miss or we don't understand. <clears throat> see, it's so easy for us to, to encapsulate certain characters of the Bible and to encapsulate them according to their soundbite, to encapsulate them according to uh, what we understand of them. When we think of David, we think of Goliath, but very rarely do we think of Bathsheba. When we think of Moses, we think of the parting of the Red Sea, but we often don't think about his, his anger problem. And so this morning, <clears throat> we're going to look at Genesis chapter 9, 
and look at something a little bit weird that we don't normally think about when we think about Noah. Now look what we read. <clears throat> the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father, father of Canaan. Now let me just stop. Who was, who was Noah? Um, we all know a little bit of the soundbite of Noah. Noah was, uh, first of all, he was a guy the Bible says lived for 950 years. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear stuff like that, the first thing I think of is, can that really be true? 950 years? But when you think about it logically, in fact, when you think about it biblically, you can see that, yeah, there's got to be truth in it because it's, it's unusual in that what we see is that after, after Noah up to Moses, human mortality begins to decline rapidly. Noah, who lived up to 950 years, leads us very shortly to Moses, who lived only 120 years. And when you think about human mortality, you think about the fact that in 1964, the average person only lived to about 65. And today, the average person lives to about 84 years old. In fact, we have people today, I think the oldest recorded person that we know of in modern history has lived up to 120 years. And so it's interesting when you look at life and what God does with human mortality. How it, how it rises and decreases. And so it's not that unusual when you think about the fact that Noah, at the very beginning of creation, lived 950 years. He was a person that Scripture describes as righteous and blameless in his generation. He was a person that the Bible tells us walked with God. He had a st strong, intimate relationship with God. Whatever God commanded, Noah did. In fact, uh, how many of you have heard the old, um, probably not politically correct anymore to say, but the old Bill Cosby uh, story on Noah? Have you ever heard that? It's a funny little skit he does. Um, but... What it must have been like in Noah's day to be running around telling everybody that God was going to end the world, that he was going to flood the world, and that people needed to get on board with that, literally, and to help in the building of the ark and to enter the ark. The, the, the insufferable humiliation he must have uh, suffered running around as people looked at him and laughed and and, 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 and made him the brunt of all of the jokes of, of his day. But it didn't deter him. He was absolutely committed to the vision that God had before him. We talked a few weeks about the difference between believing and trusting. And we said that, that the difference is you can believe in what God says, but also believe in all the fears around you. Trusting is belief without fear that initiates action. Well, that was Noah. God said it, Noah believed it, and he did it. 
he was a person who was considered to be blameless. In fact, the most blameless in all of his generation. In fact, once we see after Noah, or God lands the ark on dry land, he, he builds an altar and he gives thanks. He gives thanks and praise to God and he commemorates that time and place. And then all of a sudden, probably about a hundred years later, something begins to shift. Look what we read. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank of some of its wine, he became drunk and laid uncovered inside his tent. How does that happen? How does a righteous guy, a guy who blameless in his generation, ends up <coughs> becoming a drunk, ends up with an addiction that makes a fool of him? And I use the word addiction because some people try to patch this up and make it look kind of innocent, but it wasn't innocent. Noah had a vineyard. He understood the power of what grapes could do once they were taken and fermented. He understood that they produced a substance that you could find pleasure in. Why would he do that? Why would he be all of a sudden shift his attention to addiction? The only thing I can think of is this, is after all of the excitement of walking with God, after all the excitement and all of the stress and everything that was, had gone on in his life, when things had finally calmed down, Noah began to just drift. He began to get bored. He began to take for granted his relationship with God, and he began to slowly drift away. And he entered into addiction. What's addiction? Can, can you put that definition up there? Addiction results when a person ingests a substance or engages in an activity that can be pleasurable, but, then, but the continued use of which becomes compulsive and interferes with ordinary life. What's well, a secular definition, but it works. That's exactly what happened with Noah. It became an obsession, and it began to interfere with his life. And, and, and interestingly enough, when we look at the text, not only did he engage in drunkenness, but he engaged in nakedness. And, and I can tell you, in my years as a, as a police officer, as a pastor, as a therapist, those two always seem to go together. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people when I was a cop I would have find drunk 
and almost naked laying somewhere on the street. Think about how many young girls have have given away their virtue because they had too much to drink, or how many young couples gave away their virtue for drinking too much. Think about the young girls today that are willing to sell their bodies for heroin. A friend of mine, Dr. Manzanero, was a psychiatrist, was was telling me all the people coming into his office, and he said he had some beautiful young women coming into his office who were addicted to heroin. And he said, how are you paying for this? And they said, prostitution. Willingness to sell their bodies just to feel pleasure because somehow they've fallen into a state of numbness. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why people become alcoholics. Some people, they are anxious, and in order to self-medicate, they use alcohol, or they're depressed, or they're bipolar, or, or their life environment, they become discouraged. But at the end of the day, it's, it's there to, to, to try to stave away a numbness in life. And yet the reality is, it doesn't stave away numbness at all. It, it, it doesn't self-medicate. Think about the impact of it. Let's go back and look at the, those verses. Him, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, then walked in backwards and, cro- and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. What's the impact of of addiction on on the people around us? Well, one, it's either burden where they have to put up with the stress of it. They have to put up with the grief of it. They have to do things like pull their loved ones out of bars or or work interdictions to get their loved ones into rehab centers. The people around us are the ones who carry the burden of addiction. Imagine, I mean, his sons, at least two of them, had to cover the burden of of going and, 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 and getting a blanket or whatever they got and just back up and put it over their father's naked body. I can't tell you how many stories I have heard of young kids who have had to clean up after their parents. Once they got so drunk, they just let themselves go. How many kids have to get up every morning and and, and put together their own breakfast and put together the breakfast of their parents? I mean, some of you know what that's like. Going to an older parent's home and trying to make sure they're not drinking or trying to make sure that alcohol isn't in the house or drugs. You know, it's amazing to me today. You know, and, and I guess in my mind, when I think of drugs, when I think of people smoking marijuana and stuff like this, I think of kids' stuff. I think of, of you know, what people do when they're under peer pressure at high school, maybe a little bit in college, but I can't tell you 
how many people I know in their 50s who are smoking marijuana. It's amazing to me. I look at them and, and, and not trying to be judged, but just what comes to my mind is grow up. I mean, that's, that's like a kid thing. Not that alcoholism is any better, but it just goes to show you what happens. And, and the power of it in our lives, the damage that it causes. I mean, think about it. It damages your dignity. We saw that with, with, in Noah's life. He had lost his dignity before his sons. Damage to his morality. Here was a guy who walked with God and who was known as the person who was righteous and blameless. And now he's just like a drunk in the street. His morality, his willingness to do the right thing. The damage, is, the damage to his spirituality. He used to rely on God. He used to lean upon God. He used to find his strength from God. And now he found it in a drink, in a drink and in a substance. Damage to his creativity. Was it that God wasn't asking Noah to do anything during those days? Or was it just Noah began to drift so far away God couldn't use him? I have watched people who were intelligent people, engineers and software people and, and doctors and lawyers and nurses. I've watched people who, who worked in warehouses and were brilliant, and yet once they started drinking. You know, it's amazing to me, certain trades seem to have it too. And they're the ones that require the most creativity. Think about the construction industry. You know, guys that, I mean, I, did, I had no appreciation for construction or any of that until I had to rebuild my house when it was literally falling apart. And, and watching people come and watching what they did that I never knew how to do that. I used to think, oh, no big deal. And, and I looked stupid. I remember, I won't mention his name. <clears throat> begin last name begins with P. Who I, I would I would go to fix something around the house and then he would look at him and say, You dubber, you don't do it like that. And then I would stand there looking stupid watching him fix it. And yet I've watched alcoholics just waste all their creativity. What it does to us psychologically, the stress it produces the depression, the anxiety, the anger, what it does to us physiologically, to our liver, to our kidneys, to our brains. Do you know when you go into surgery, and unfortunately I've had too many surgeries, do you know the two questions they ask you? Do you drink or do you smoke? Because drinking and smoking just is a whole different dynamic for people who are going to have surgery. Because you can bleed more when you drink a lot or smoke a lot. You mess up your body even though you might be thinking, I feel fine, I look fine. What it does to your unity with the people around you. Alcohol damages. Drugs damage. 
Sexual addictions damage. They destroy who we are. I want you to just take a couple minutes, and uh, I want to share a um, uh, a audio clip. This is by Craig Ferguson. Some of you might know the name. Some of you might not. He was a, a late night uh, comedian um, who had a talk show. Who was from Scotland? Who had a terrible, terrible alcohol addiction, and um, he talks about it in his autobiography. I just want to play a little snippet for you. Hmm? As soon as we got back into town, I ran to the Hurricanes Bar on West Nile Street and pounded down three or four pints of lager very quickly. The sweating and shaking abated, and I felt a little anxious, but a lot better. In rehab years later, I reread Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This is great. I equated that moment in Mrs. Henderson's car to the awful realization Henry Jekyll has when he grasps that he no longer needs the potion to transform into the monster Edward Hyde. He needs the potion to remain the ordinary Henry Jekyll. Alcoholism is like this. Even people who have suffered from alcoholism for years can't comprehend it if they are still drinking. And those who have recovered from this seemingly helpless condition of mind and body seem to agree on only a few things. It is cunning. It is baffling. It is powerful. And it is patient. People still ask me how much did I drink every day, and the answer is, I don't know. I didn't keep a journal. I drank what I had to every day, and that's how much I drank. And here's the sneaky part. It's not linear. I didn't drink every day, not until the end. I simply could never guarantee or even guess what my actions would be after only one sip of alcohol. Understand this, if nothing else. It's not about how much you drink. It's not about the alcohol really at all. It's about what the alcohol does to the alcoholic. That's why I would never advocate temperance for those who didn't need it or prohibition for those who didn't want it. If I could drink like a normal person, then I would drink. Since I can't, I don't. Here's something else that proves to my mind anyway that I am an alcoholic. If I could drink like a normal person, I would not be interested in drinking alcohol. This is sometimes very difficult for non-alcoholics to understand. That's what makes them non-alcoholics. Alcohol ruined me financially and morally, broke my heart and the hearts of too many others. Even though it did this to me and it almost killed me and I haven't touched a drop of it in 17 years, sometimes I wonder if I could get away with drinking some now. I totally subscribe to the notion that alcoholism is a mental illness because thinking like this is clearly insane. I do not believe that this absolves me of any guilt or moral failure. I never used to drink before a show, but now I had to have a beer or three just to settle my nerves. There was a kind of panic that stopped me nearly all the time. As long as I was occupied by drumming or dancing or listening to very loud music or doing drugs or having sex or, of course, drinking, then I felt okay. But as soon as I was left with no money or opportunity to get out of myself, I would feel the terror creeping up. I felt that I might go completely insane at any moment. I couldn't sleep unless I was drunk. And when I did pass out, I was tormented by awful dreams. Then, for a few hours or even a few days, it would stop. Just like that. I did sleep, I didn't drink with quite the same urgency, and I began to feel a little more human. It returned just as abruptly. I would never know when the terror would strike, in a car, on a bus, in bed. 
sometimes I would wake up screaming. I knew something lived inside me that was out of my control. It could be sedated and calmed with alcohol, but one of the side effects of that particular medicine was that when I sobered up, the panic would be worse. A very vicious circle. I have been asked many times since then why I didn't seek help, but the truth is I didn't really know what was wrong with me. I thought, this is just who I am, a terrorized man, a lunatic, a neurotic, and thought the only way through was to try and maintain some outward semblance of normalcy or else I'd be locked up forever in a padded cell. Pretty powerful, isn't it? But that's what goes on. And I love what he says. It's, it's cunning. It's patient. Noah didn't see what was hitting him when it was hitting him. He didn't wake up to the reality of, of the damage until he woke up literally covered, realizing that somebody put a blanket over his nakedness. Let's go back to the text. And the father of Canaan saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backwards and covered their father's body. Their faces were turned away so that they would not see their father's naked, their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. Now, what was he, when he woke up and he'd heard the story of what happened, when he heard the story of how his his two sons sought to cover him, uh, but his other son just used it as an opportunity to, to mock him. He became angry. But let's just back it up there a little bit. Because the noble part of this story is what his two sons did. They covered him up. They, ex they extended the power of God's love. And here's a principle I want you to get from this. God's love is the greatest prescription for human addiction. That's just the truth. God's love is the greatest prescription for human addiction. God's love that we receive and and God's love that helps us to bring back our focus and change our direction. Only that love, only the power of God's spirit can do that. Nothing else can really make that happen. I've watched people stop drinking because they're afraid of losing their wife or they're afraid of losing their job. But when their wife says, I don't care, it's been too much, I'm out of here. Or when they end up losing their job anyways, they go back to drinking. It isn't until they look to God and they desire his love and lean upon his strength that any real change is made. It's the greatest prescription of 
for us as people to move away from addiction. And it's also the greatest prescription for us as the people of God to, to cover people in God's love. To let them know that we love them more than the addiction that they think loves them. It's hard to be with someone who's addicted. It's hard to be patient. And sometimes you have to do hard things. But it's, it's, it's seeking to cover them in God's love. And seeking them, put them in a place where they receive it. Yeah, it's interesting. Noah curses um, him, but he doesn't curse him. He curses his children. And then he blesses Shem. The, the word Shem literally means in the Hebrew, the name. Um, and it would become the name of the people of God. And out of that name would come God's Savior. And I love this. Adeshem would come a Savior to the world, to the Gentile people, the people of Japheth, and also to the Canaanites. He, he cursed Canaan, and yet in the end, he used the Savior that came out of Shem to turn around and save all of them. The point is this. It's only in the love of God in Christ that we find the greatest ability to change. I know some of you, and I know some of you have been caught up in addiction. I know some of you have great stories and great testimonies of how you came out of addiction by the power of God's love. In fact, to be honest with you, they're the only stories that I really trust. <clears throat> Some of you have probably seen the bumper sticker, Bill W. <clears throat> His name was Bill Wilson. He was um, <clears throat> born of parents who later abandoned him. <clears throat> and what his parents did for a business was they, they ran a tavern. They ran a bar. He was born above, above the tavern. And after his parents uh, abandoned him, he was raised by his grandmother. Uh, then he went off to college but left because he was having panic attacks and was uh, um, experiencing depression. And then he went into the military and he learned how to drink. And it seemed to medicate all of it. Then he got out of the military got married and decided he needed to pursue his education, and so he went to law school. <clears throat> but he flunked out of law school because he was drunk for the exams. He went into rehab over four times, and nothing seemed to work. Nothing seemed to, to reach inside of him and pull out the monster that had overtaken him. It wasn't <clears throat> until he came in the presence of uh, his physician, a, William, a man by the name of William Silkworth, who said to him, if you want to be healed, you have to turn to the great physician. 
That's where we get the term from. And so one night while Bill Wilson was laying in bed, he cried out to God in a panic. He said, if you are real, show yourself to me. Help me. And he said, all of a sudden, he felt the power of God's hand upon him. He saw a light that just opened his eyes and his heart and his mind. He experienced the power of God, which is the greatest prescription for human addiction. And his life changed after that. And after that, he took the work of the great physician and and he went out and created an organization to help others struggling in addiction. And it's still there today. Yeah, they, they have moved from Christ to supreme being or somebody's higher power. But the truth of the power is, unless you look to God, unless you can find the intimacy of God's love, will you ever find the the reality of recovery? Noah had a great life. And you would almost think that God would say, you know what? Noah had such a great life and was such a wonderful guy and he was so obedient. We're just going to kind of skip a good portion of chapter 9. We're going to give him a break. We're not going to bring in his dirty laundry. It doesn't really matter because the rest of his life outweighed it. But the problem is, it didn't. Because it damaged him and it damaged Three generation of children, people who have become to be called the Canaanites, who were known for moral depravity. People who would always be at odds with God. Here's the deal. I don't know what you struggle with. I spend a, a good part of my time when I do therapy, half my time is working with people with sexual addiction. And, and sexual addiction is never the only addiction. There's always alcoholism or drugs or something else. There's always anger. And the only thing that can make a difference in all of our lives, the only thing that can keep us strong and straight and living without obsession and addiction is the affection of God. It means being willing to acknowledge I need God. I have a problem and I need him to solve it. And without him, I can't do it. It's being willing to ask. To every day get up and ask God for the strength to get through one more day. You know, part of Bill W.'s 
AA was founded on the principle one day at a time, but really Jesus said that. Don't worry about tomorrow. Live one day at a time. The willingness to just, God, be with me today. The willingness to begin. I have so many people say, you know, I'm going to stop drinking tomorrow. I'm going to stop whatever tomorrow. But then when tomorrow comes, there's always tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. You've got to be willing to begin right now. And the willingness to lean on other people and to lean on God. Because God can do incredible things. When I was 13, 14 years old, I started young. I started drinking at 13 and smoking marijuana at 13 and a lot. To the point that by the time I was 15, my brother and I would finish off four cases of beer a weekend, and a half pound of marijuana between the two of us. If you don't know what that is, that's a lot. And I, I felt everything he said. Totally helpless. And it wasn't until I turned to God it wasn't until I was willing to acknowledge. It wasn't until I was willing to ask at around age 16 that God took it away. Now, I know there are people, it happens in different ways, but for me it happened all at once. Whatever you struggle with, don't struggle alone. God doesn't, didn't mean us to walk alone. Lean on him. Rest in him. Trust him. Make him bigger and stronger than whatever it is that seems to have a hook in you. And he will be. All you have to do is begin. Let's join our hearts in prayer.